The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Alright, so basically in the book of Jude, what we have covered thus far, we made it, I think, relatively clear that our writer here obviously is Jude. His name is put right there first on it. It's the first word that we read in the English translations at, at least. It's probably a shortened version of the name Judas, albeit it's not Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had already passed. He'd already taken his own life. Probably, time of writing this book, I estimate about 30-some-odd years before. So there's no doubt in my mind or anyone else's that this was not Judas Iscariot. This could be, and it seems to indicate that it is, this could be the half-brother of Jesus. And, uh, of course, he doesn't mention Jesus by name as far as claiming him as being part of his lineage. He does mention James. And so we know that he's kin to someone named James. And when we do our research and our digging, just to shorten all that up, we do learn that Jesus had several brothers, one of which included someone named Jude or Judas. Another was James. Another was Simon. And then even another was listed. And then he had, quote, sisters. So he has other members of his family. So at least there are six siblings, if not more. And this is most likely the half-brother of Jesus who is writing this. Of course, if that is the case then we have to probably go ahead and assume that this is someone who grew up not really comprehending, not really accepting who Jesus was, but only in adulthood it seems that it, most of his family would, at least the ones that we're aware of do. Uh, Mary probably had the best insight to that all the way from before his birth, and she went through and maybe didn't comprehend everything, but at least was looking forward to him being the given son that God had offered, which was to be the Savior. Uh, we do know that James would come to... Uh, be understanding of that. We know that James would become what was called, quote, a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. Now, whether that means he was a serving elder or just a prominent member, just someone who was really willing to take up, uh, to take up and do work to serve, I'm not sure what that indicates, but it does indicate something special about him. And then if perhaps Jude be the writer of this book, again, that perhaps half-brother of Jesus, then we've got him doing some wonderful work here as well. Now just to read the scriptures as we kind of get down through it, I've already got the uh, skeleton outline put back up on the board. I gave a handout of this and I know you still have them in your Bibles. They're probably not even six months old by now, so you can probably dig that up, uh, I doubt. But uh, basically the skeleton outline in my outline that I would try to remember and try to keep up with is much longer, much more developed. But basically it comes down to these first two verses being the address. And that's just kind of the standard address uh, that is apparently the standard of Jude. Now, it is very similar what he says to what others would say, especially the apostles like Paul. They typically open their letters like someone in their day would, just basically by telling you who they were and who they were addressing. And he does that very standard here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So a little bit wording than what Paul is so standard to use. He doesn't use exactly the same terms, but they're very similar. They offer the same information in that. And we made a real clear, I hope, uh, distinction of the fact that Jude claimed himself to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, not claiming kinship, probably was there, but not claiming to be akin to him, but to be a servant of his. And that proves his willingness to submit, if you will, to the will of Jesus, and therefore ours is the same. 
And he mentions here that he is writing to those who he says first are sanctified, also those that are preserved, and also those that are called. That's all in verse 1. And that's the way he addresses this people. So we could in turn assume to that, well, Jesus is writing to fellow Christians. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, as we might term that. So that's just basically his address. Now, the really important part comes in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, and that is his aim. Because Jude tells us pretty, pretty quickly and clearly what he had intended or hoped, I guess, in his heart to write and how that would be changed. Look at it in verse uh, 3 and 4. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. For, and he tells us why he has to do such, he says, For there are certain men who crept in unawares, who before ordained, who were before ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so his aim initially, he says, is he wants to write to them about what? What's the quote King James speak? About the common salvation. And so what he really wants to write, and this is just my way of interpreting that, probably my way of picturing such, he wants to write a letter where he can really gather up all the Christians, wherever they've been scattered from, write a letter that encourages them to know that, look, you serve the same God as I do, and He does, and she does, and we do, and we've come to have a common among us, a salvation. And of course, we get a common salvation by having a common standard, by having something among us that is absolutely standard, it's absolutely the one thing that we look to, the one tool that we use to lead us and guide us in everything. What's that? We're blessed with a, with a printed... Uh, most cases leather bound, black and white. Mine's a little yellow and, uh, yellow and black, but black and white copies of the Bible. Now it seems that by the time of writing, we don't have this absolutely sure, that by the time of Jude writing this letter, that the majority, if not all, of the New Testament inspired words had been penned by that point. Now how far that had circulated, we cannot be sure. How far that had gone out, we cannot be sure. But it seems potentially at least that the majority, if not all, of the New Testament has already been penned. It's already been inspired. It's already in the, in the printing process, if you want to call it that. Now, if there's a, a, an exception to that, we cannot be absolutely sure, but it could be an exception that maybe the Revelation had not been penned by this time. Some argue one way or some argue the other. Someone claimed that because he uses the phrase, the common salvation, that everything had to be penned. I'm not sure if that has to be the case, but it could indicate that. But he tells us that his aim or his intention was to write concerning this common salvation. Now, how do we gain commonality? I just mentioned this in the Bible, but how could we find commonality today among, and I'm using very broad terms, the quote, religious world. How could that ever happen? Everyone would have to go back to the Bible 
basically read it at face value, and you understand when I say that, I don't mean the apocalyptic language of Revelation or anything in Isaiah and just say, well, that's absolutely literal and that's the end of it. But I mean basically read the Bible at face value, and the most important thing that would have to be on taken by all of those people is that they receive it as God's Word. That's usually the great divide. That's usually the huge difference between what we might understand as God's Word and what the world may understand. That is always the difference in when you see someone who's going along in life, and sometimes we point this out as you know, teenagers, young adults, and you see them that come up to a point, they go off to school, we blame this anyway, we blame the school, but they go off to school, they hear all this stuff about all these other subjects outside of it, and they come back home one, one Saturday afternoon or something, visit the family, and they say, look, I don't believe that book anymore. I've, I've learned this, and I've learned that, and I can prove to you this, and I can tell you about that. What's the difference? How they saw that book, the Bible. Whether or not they understood it, as the Thessalonian brethren did, to be the Word of God or the Word of man. And that's the divide. I can learn anything or I can examine anything in life. I don't think it's a smart thing to do in many cases, but I can study and learn anything in life as long as in my mind I can absolutely be settled that whatever that is, those stacks of books or libraries on this side, do not compare to the Word of God on the other. They do not enhance the Word of God on the other. They do not encourage the Word of God on the other. They live in a different realm because they are penned out of the minds of men, not the mind of God. So he writes to them, he says, I would love to write to you concerning the common salvation, but he finds it, quote, needful for me to write to you to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, if you wanted to subdivide this up, that's his aim we're talking about here. Basically, another really skeleton outline of this book, just the book of Jude, would be that in the first 16 verses, what Jude attempts to do is to expose error. In the last half of this book, from 17 to 25, he wants to encourage the elect. And you know, I've got to alliterate everything. So that's the elect, that's the saints, that's Christians. But to expose error and to encourage the elect. This is a tremendous, and I, I didn't see it this way the first two or three times I studied through this, but to me right now, my opinion, that's my disclaimer, this is a tremendous, tremendous guide to anyone who wants to preach the gospel. Or better yet, even farther, this is a tremendous, tremendous guide to anyone who wants to live the Christian life. Because there will be times when that balance has to be to expose error while trying to encourage the elect. And that's sometimes difficult to do. Because sometimes the attitude of us, I'm guilty as charged, both hands up. The attitude of us is we hear sermons that you know, don't seem to encourage in every single aspect, and I'll disclaim that again in a moment, but don't seem to encourage out of every word, out of every verse, out of every passage. And we say, well, they're just trying to tell us what taught to do, what we can't do, what we ought not do, and, and all these things. It's all, it's all about the thou shalt nots, and somebody stands up and says, you know, that's just so discouraging. Preaching and teaching and study that 
always focuses on those things, that's just so discouraging. And it just feels like I'm being beat every time I have to listen to that. I've heard complaints like that. But the thing is, it's just a part of the Word. And Jude is really a letter, in my opinion, written to remind us as Christians to remind us that, yes, there has to be balance. But that balance has to include, at times, exposing error. And it can't go any differently. You're just scratching or you're getting ready to talk. That's right. You will have the negative and the positive and a perspective, not that we always keep this perspective, but the perspective of a Christian ultimately has to become this, that even what seems negative is a positive. Because to teach someone about Jesus, and that's kind of the focus when you get into a TV evangelist, and I don't use that lightly, but a televangelist, or you get into a weakened a pulpit or whatever, oftentimes the brunt of everything is, well, teach them about love and grace and mercy and Jesus, and they'll name off a number of things that don't ever seem negative. When the truth is that if you bring someone to the very foot of Jesus and you take him through the gospel itself in just the, the bones of it, and you have he or she to be baptized, to be immersed in water for the remission of their sins, and then you in turn never teach them what those sins might be or the potential sins they may be involved in and they don't know how to live, they won't make it but about a day and a half. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but they won't make it far. I wouldn't make it far if all I knew was that, yes, Jesus died to save me, and that's wonderful and that's true, but I don't know how to live for him. So Jude addresses that here. He says, I would that, I would that you would earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For, and here's again why, verse 4, For there were certain men that crept in unawares who were before ordained. Now, let's think about that phrase, before ordained. What does that tell us? There's certain men that crept in unawares. They're sneaky, they're sly. Ultimately, what they're going to teach people is, look, you live any life you want to live, what was sin five years ago, it's not sin anymore. Or what, what you used to believe or what your grandmother or granddaddy taught you or your mom or your daddy, that, that was just them, that was their culture, that was their lifestyle. Ours is altogether different now in 2022. And so we live by different standards, but we're still good Christians. What this tells us is, it says there were certain men unawares that crept in that were before ordained. That tells us, they ain't surprised God. They may have surprised the members of a given congregation. They may have surprised the home of a Christian. Or they may have surprised the heart of a child of God's. But it wasn't a surprise to God. God knew before the world was ordained that there would be those who would decide and determine in their life that I don't want to live after a godly standard. Do you know anybody in your life, and I, I know several, I know, I know a lot, and I'm thankful for this on one hand, but do you know anyone in your life that if you step back and you're honest about that person, you might say to yourself, you know what, I know they are not a Christian, but they sure are good folk. 
I know a lot of people like that. I mean, I, I probably told this before, I know I told it somewhere, but Scott's not the same guy I'm talking about, but there was a guy in Philadelphia, Mississippi, sat right where Scott Stevens does. My understanding is he had been sitting in that same pew for over 50 years. His wife was absolutely wonderful, great Christian lady. He had never obeyed the gospel. He didn't miss a service. He didn't miss a thing. You know, we went over to the house one day and uh, we're waiting as his wife was preparing lunch. They were going to feed us that day. And he turns on the television and something came on the TV right quick. Cameron and uh, Cameron and Juliana were there. Uh, but something came on TV right quick and boom, he cut it off. And he said, that burns me up. But why they put that stuff on television? He had higher standards than most. Not a Christian. You see, this lets us know that there are certain men that creep in unawares that were foreordained that sometimes, unlike that man I'm describing, make a determination in their heart to be ungodly men because they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll have people, and he's writing primarily to Christians here, but you'll have people who are Christians who at some point in their lives, for whatever reason, it could be varied, it could be absolutely no reason that's apparent, just say, look, I've decided I want to live this way. And the standards that I've always understood have been this, but I would rather live this way. And they put their foot down, not to fellow Christians, although it's, it applies, but they're putting their foot down toward God and saying, God, I'm going to live my way. And what happens? Well, first of all, we know the outcome of them if they don't change, if there's no repentance. We can understand the outcome of that. Someone who rebels against God, uh, shakes their fist in the face of God, or points their finger at him and says, I'm not going to live after that standard. I, I'll do everything else you say, but I'm not going to do that or whatever it is. But the sad case is, is oftentimes when that happens in the heart of one person, what else happens? Others follow. Others go for it. You see, these men that are described here as creeping in unawares, who God had foreordained, knew before the world would exist, they're creeping in unawares and they're spreading a gospel, in their mind I guess, that includes turning the grace of God into basically freedom. Think about what is said in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Pretty familiar verses. I don't know if anybody can quote them or turn to them quickly enough. But Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What does Paul present to the Romans? And it's similar along these lines. You got it? Yeah. Shall we continue in sin? Why? so that grace may abound. What's the answer Paul gives? Through inspiration. God forbid. How are we that are dead to sin live there, live there in any longer? And so that's kind of a, a divine commentary from yet another inspired New Testament writer being Paul who describes the people who are saying to themselves, look, we will continue in sin or we'll live in sin or we'll dabble in sin because we know God will forgive us. Now that is a doctrine that's dangerous. 
First of all, will God forgive us of any sin that we uh, confess slash repent of to Him? This side of eternity, will He do so? You can do this right here, He will, He will. But that is a very, very dangerous path to walk down. It has to be true repentance. It has to be heart repentance. It can't just be a turning of physical mind. You know, you can't just stop stealing cars while you drive the last car you stole, that kind of a thing. There has to be the heart of repentance that comes with it because godly repentance worketh what? Worketh unto salvation. There has to be a real turn there. But these men right here, described at least, are those who are using the idea, maybe of what Paul said, I'll just sin and I'll live my life and God will forgive it. And then the worser state, and worse is a real word around here on my side of town. In the worser state of that, what's being said is, I don't have to live by his standards because he don't understand me. He doesn't know me. I can live this way and that way and this way and that because that's just, that's not what God expects. Now, oftentimes what they'll do to get to that place is they'll do what to the Bible? They'll twist it up. They'll misinterpret it. They'll go into it looking for one thing and failing to see the other. They'll pull one verse from here and two verses from over there and they'll determine this just has to be the whole counsel of God right here because I found me a verse that says I can do this when they don't put in the context where that verse is written, how it was written, or who it was written to. They'll use things that they pull from nowhere. Well, he says these men, yes, they'll do something like that because they'll crept in unawares. They'll be turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Uh, basically, lasciviousness, the word, has anyone got a translation different than lasciviousness? That's in verse number four. Sexuality. Lewdness. Evil. There's a lot of little words in the margins or maybe might be swapped out for that. All fit very well. Basically, if you wanted to nutshell those, and this is not an inspired translation. This is the Jim Merle Understanding Bible, okay? And my Understanding Bible is not real accurate sometimes. But basically, if you want to put a translation on that, uh, lewdness, lasciviousness, sexuality, evil, whatever, if you want to box that up, they're taking a license, you're taking a license. You get pulled over by a state trooper on the way home. What's the first thing he or she may ask you for as soon as that window rolls down? Can I have your license and registration? What's he really saying? Prove to me you have a right to be in this vehicle. Prove to me that you have a right to be operating this vehicle. That's what he's saying. What happens if you can't prove such? It would be up to the grace of the, of the trooper with a hat on, I guess, but it could be, it could be fairly severe. It, it, could, it could be up in the point of going, you know, going and spending some time in the clunk or whatever you call it, the clink. And it could be your car being left on the side of the road to be towed. It could be a lot of things depending on what was really involved in that. But the point is, I can't drive a vehicle and just say, well, you know what? I used to ride around in the truck with my daddy all the time. He said I was a good driver. Now, I know some of y'all grew up that way, and that's fine back then, but today, you can't say, well, I, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never had a license. I do it my way. 
And he says, well, why were you driving on the left side of the road doing 116 miles an hour? Well, I, that's the way I want to do it. But the law says to do it, to know it, but I don't like the law. See how silly an argument like that would be? You know the results of an argument like that? It, it, you would get to the extreme side of things, I think, with that type of a, a mindset, that type of way of thinking. These men, although they don't have driver's license, no vehicles, these men are basically saying, we're going to take the little bit of grace, not little bit, but we're going to take the amount of grace that God gives us, and we're going to use that as our license to do what we want to do. Which that license says on it, forgiven has opportunity to repent. The problem is that license doesn't have an expiration date on it and you can't prove it. You can't determine when that license runs out. So that's not a good plan. These men creep in unawares. Again, they affect other people with that. And that's part of the problem that he is addressing here. That's exactly right. It does. It highlights the physical. It highlights, in this case, the sexual. But the physical is the core of that. Verse 5. He comes on and says, And I therefore put you into remembrance, though ye once knew this, and how the Lord, having saved you out of, here's his first example, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe. Did God once overlook, what's a better word, oversee, guide the children of Israel out of Egypt. Did he once do that? How did he do that physically? There are two things that always stand out. He did it in many ways, but physically he became their guide in what two ways? One's by day, one's by night. The, the pillar of fire and the cloud, depending on pillar of fire at night, cloud during the day. How did he take care of their physical bodies during that time? What did he give them? Water and manna. He gave them a way to eat. He gave them a way to survive. He basically took care of their basic needs. Uh, we were talking about this a week or two ago in Bible time. And, of course, this is, this is actually listed in the account. One of the things that was possible for them is that they, they did not grow their clothes, including their shoes, it seems. That would be a blessing in my house. And I know it would have been my mom and daddy's too. But God cared for them. God took care of them. God held them. God kept them. But at some point, when they turned on God, what did he have to do? Turn on them, in a sense. He had to look away from them, in a sense. He had to let them go their own way. That resulted in their 40 years of wilderness wandering and such, is one example of that. So he starts out with a very mild, although that's a severe outcome, he starts out with a very mild application of such when he says, I just want to put you in remembrance. I want you to put this in your mind before you go any farther with this 
taking the grace of God to the point of lasciviousness, making a license out of everything that you want to do in life because you assume you can, I want to remind you that when the children of Israel took a similar path and determined that they knew better than God, and remember in the beginning all that was really said was what? By the, by the spies that went in, those, part of the spies that came out, what did they say? Those ten. We just can't do it. We just can't do it. They're, they're too big. They're too strong. They're too many. They're like giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. We just can't do it. Is there a problem with anxiety and nervousness and worry and concern? Maybe you can just bring it on down to concern. To a point, no. Except for the fact who had said they could. God had said they could. You see, in that case, God is giving them a protection. God is giving them a provision. God is giving them uh, the things that they need to survive, and they have it. They've obtained it. They're using it. They're, they're carrying it with them. But they, in turn, look at that and said, God, you might be good in all these other ways, but you're wrong in this point. And what's one of the things that they said even to Moses at one point? Would the God that we had even died in Egypt? They said, be better still be in Egypt to be dying there than be out here in this wilderness. Not what God had promised. They were missing the promises that God had already given them. And again, this is kind of the milder of the illustrations here. But he said to read it again, For I therefore would put thee into remembrance how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that what? Believe not. That's the key. Believe not. I heard Cliff, South Haven, Mississippi, 2004, use an illustration. I don't even know if it was a real illustration, but it sure sounded real. And knowing what I know about a member of his family, it could have been. Cliff used an illustration that if Cade were standing in the church parking lot tossing gravel in the air and it landed on his hood, and he said, Cade, stop that. If Cade believed him, he would. I don't know if that was a real occurrence or not. Somebody could probably say it was or it wasn't. I know it could have been at my house. But if Cade says, okay, I hear you, I'll stop, and pitches gravel in the air one more time, what's he done? He's disobeyed. He did not believe him. And maybe the statement could be said, son, don't you believe me? Sure. Didn't believe him. Didn't believe the outcome. He says he destroyed them that believed not. So that's the first example. Now, I haven't subdivided these. I think on the longer outlines, if you were to find one of those, I did. But this section, verses 5, basically uh, through about verse 9-ish, basically mentions some notable destructions. That's the terms I use, the notable destructions. Because these things in the minds of the readers at the time should have been noted. When he said, wait a minute, look what happened to Israel, somebody in the room should have said, oh, oh yeah, you're right about that. You're exactly right. We don't want to go down the path of them. So whatever God says, we will do. If God is limiting us on what we can do with our bodies, in the case of the next examples, sexually, then we'll stick with God's way. God's way is better. God's way is right. But perhaps they weren't. 
because they were using the, the ability of God to be forgiven as their license to such. Second example here. By the way, the first one, if you want to put down some references to one in verse five, the one in verse five listed, that's Numbers chapter 13. Okay, you can read the whole chapter, but Numbers chapter 13, particularly verses 25 to 33. Numbers 13, 25 to 33, um, cover that, at least give you some insight. Chapter 14 does as well. And we even learn in chapter 14 of Numbers, which is something we mentioned 20 minutes ago, the problem with all this came in the fact that when those 10 spies came back and said, we can't do it, Joshua and Caleb said, we are well able to overcome it. The next chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, begins to talk about the people's heart melting, and they all followed the way of the 10. So they decided to go with that. So they all became unbelievers to a point because of the discouragement that they received from the other. So that's the first example, that of Israel. Second example, this is a little bit tricky. The second example is that of the fallen angels. And I'm just referring to that in the way that it's spoken of in the world and understood. Look what it says, verse 6, Jude 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved unto everlasting chains under darkness, unto judgment in that great day. When the angels that left their first estate. Now, there are some things we can be sure of, and that is what was the first estate of angels? That, that's heaven, the presence of God, that's service to God, that's, that's worship to God, that's respect of God. It, it's the fact that that's where they were placed. That's where they were lain to be created, created to serve God in heaven. That's the first estate. Now, exactly what comes into play and how that takes place, this verse does not reveal really anything to us other than stating that there were angels even. The word angels could be interpreted as messengers, okay? There were angels even who left their first estate, but left in their own habitation. So they went and did what they wanted to do for a, for a while, and he took those and reserved them under everlasting change of darkness and judgment in that great day. What does that sound like? That's hell. We've got a contrast here. Whatever it is and how you get from point A to point D, we've got a first estate, potentially heaven. We've got a last estate, obviously hell. At least a description of such. Why? Because they basically look at God and say, God, let me try my way today. Let me do this my way today. Now, there's several passages we won't go to this time, but uh, we will look at one. But there's several passages of parallels that go along with this. One being in the New Testament. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. So just turn uh, back to your left a little bit. It's in here, mine, somewhere. There it is. How you get them to believe, I don't know, because the problem of these two groups already and the next two will be as well, that they don't believe. You know, it's, it's, on, it's on, as I said, black and white pages, you're able to interpret that yourself. You're able to, like we studied Philemon for 
whatever that was, 11 or 12 weeks, you're able to reach out and be that person that says, look, we got a problem here, we got an issue, we got sin involved, and they just keep standing back and saying, but it doesn't matter. Or, uh, uh, say what? Doesn't apply to me. It's beyond, it's beyond their apparent uh, immediate comprehension, at least, I guess. Look at Second Peter chapter, I think it's chapter 2. Yes, let's, let's read. This is kind of a divine parallel to this. 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. We've got to stop in just a moment anyway. But there were false prophets also among you, and people even that were false teachers among you, who privily, that's similar to snuck in unawares, shall bring damnation and heresies, and even denying the Lord that brought them, and bringeth upon them swift destruction." And many shall follow their pernicious ways. The King James pernicious right there is lascivious, loose ways. And many shall follow their pernicious ways for reason of whom they by truth are evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they be feigned words, make merchandise of you, whose judgment is now long time lingereth not, uh, lingereth not, and their damnation stumbleth not, or slumbereth not. For God spared not the same parallel. What it means exactly, I'm not proving, I can't. For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into, now Jude tells us, everlasting chains of darkness. They're preserved in the everlasting chains of darkness. Here it says it's a done deal. For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell to deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then he goes through, at least in this account, Peter's account, which is a very close parallel, to discuss others who are involved, including that of those outside of the, the Noatic Ark, as well as Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6 and such, and calls them those that were, verse 7, I'm in 2 Peter 2, those who were in verse 7 delivered, to just lot and vex the filthy conversation of the wicked for the righteous man dwelling in among them and seeing and hearing his righteous soul for that day with the unlawful deeds. And so he gives a few different examples, Peter does, by inspiration. But they're talking about the same idea. They're pulling cases out from the Old Testament so far. They're pulling out cases and saying, if you turn your back on God, and more than that, turn your back on God's ways, that brings condemnation. And that's where these people are in the midst of this, what I'm calling notable destruction. Now, other times you can find veiled references to things like this as far as the fallen angel thing. I mentioned 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 was the main verse there. Perhaps, you hear perhaps? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 mentions something like that. Luke chapter 10, 18 Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and so forth. So there are other references that indicate that something happened with a group of angels, perhaps led by Satan, that they were pushed down or thrown into this pit or this fiery place. Second law of pardon for the angels. Uh, and, and 
It's it's a it's it's a good feeling. It's a good picture. It's a good thought. But I think that's a good good way of putting it as well. I don't want to be an angel because they don't have that second chance, and because it's apparent that some way somehow do I understand this? No, Brad will be out in the back afterward. If you want to speak with him, he'll explain everything. <laughs> but there's some way that the angels had the ability to fall. Well, you and I are hoping to live and die faithfully, and that be it. That be the end. And whether or not someone believes that judgment occurs upon death or someone believes that they sit reserved in a place until it makes no difference because it's, that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the end of the decision being made. Can I ask a question? Is there habitation, their own habitation? Let me read that again. They lost their first estate. Mm -hmm. They lost their original position, their original place, but left their own habitation. Yes, that could indicate such. Left their own habitation, but they were moved into... I tell you my answer to that, I, I don't think so. But... We're, we're not in their position as well as we, again, we die. We die in the state. How can I word this? Anybody want to speak up quickly and loudly? Can? Thanks be to God that, that that for us occurs prior to the judgment and then after there we can be sealed by it. Anything else? We, we're out of time according to people standing in the back. All right, we will come back to that um, and see how far we can dig. Thanks for your questions. I received the same question about two weeks ago on a Wednesday night and I answered it this way. <laughs>